When I was in a middle school English class, I was taught how to write a letter. And we kind of spent a long time going through what it looked like to start a letter, uh, how to greet someone, how it should be organized, and uh, the, the, even the, the ending of a letter, what you should say in a letter, what you shouldn't say in a letter. And you know, there's letters of thankfulness and letters of encouragement and just kind of like going through the steps to do it. But also when I was in middle school, uh, it was the year that like computers were supposed to be in every single home. And so uh, I was given a laptop, and actually one of my teachers was, is here. It was like this thick. It was a really big laptop, and, and we all learned how to type without looking, and we all got our own emails, and, and our whole uh, school curriculum was on the computer. And so something about uh, a handwritten note and something about like writing was really intriguing to me. And so I got really passionate about it, and I like would practice my handwriting. Uh, and, and as I got into high school, I actually read books on how to write good letters, uh, because I'm really geeky, too. And, uh, and I learned just what it was, like how to write a letter that's, that's meaningful and important. And I got a calligraphy set, and I would practice my handwriting. And I got really way too into it, probably. But <laughs> there's just something really special about a handwritten note, and I, I think you can probably agree with that. If you get a handwritten note in the mail, it means a lot more than an email in some ways, right? Uh, it's, it's sometimes even more important than a face-to-face conversation because it's something that you hold on to. It's something that's tangible and you can look back on. And so I, I've said this before, but I save my notes, and I have all these notes from over long periods of times, and, and I look at them, and I think through different people that I don't even talk to anymore and, and conversations that I've had in context uh, from a long time ago. And I like to read through them, but uh, my favorite part of handwritten letters are actually the ends of the letter. And, and every time I look at a letter, I'll, I'll read from the end. I'll, I'll read the signature, who wrote the letter, in the last couple lines, because it's kind of a summary of, of the whole letter. It's, it's this last push of what the letter's purpose was. And so I brought some examples to share with you. And uh, this first one uh, is from Paul. And I tell you that because it's on a toilet paper roll. And... Uh, <laughs> And it says, apologies for the stationery. We try to recycle here. And <clears throat> the last line of the letter says, your life and heart are making a tremendous difference. And, and what that was drawing me towards was the fact that this letter was, when I was going on vacation, he wanted me to rest and find rest in God. And the only way that I can have, uh, make a tremendous impact was if I rested in God first. And so that, that was like a call to, like, if you want to be that way, you need, to, you need to find rest in God. Another letter is from my sister. And the end says, I can't explain how thankful I am to have you as my brother. You have such a great heart. And that last line was kind of encouraging me in in, in what she saw in me as a brother and why she looked up to me. This one says, God is great, so are you. Cheesy but true. I love you, and I made a rhyme, Mom. (laughs) That was the end of a long stream of letters of her encouraging me in who I am in Christ. This one as well, which says, Devin, you are indeed fearfully and wonderfully made. And this one says, I am proud of the man of God you continue to become. I continue to pray that you would rise above your circumstances and environment and challenge those around you with the love that only comes from God. I love you, Devin. And that was when I was in college, and he wrote this letter about how these people that were around me who were influencing me in ways that they shouldn't have, I should be the opposite and give God to them. And so this last couple of lines really gave me a drive to, to share Christ with the people around me rather than influencing me in, in a different way, if that makes sense. And so these last couple of lines of these letters are, are almost the most important part of the letter because they give you a kind of a focus. They, they cause you to feel something or cause you to want to do something. 
So we've spent the past 17 weeks going through the book of Galatians, and this is the very end. And so what took us 17 weeks to read through, the Galatian uh, churches would have read this letter in 12 minutes. They would have gotten to this part. And so what I don't want us to do is forget that this is a letter. This isn't just, uh, this letter wasn't written to be in the Bible. It was actually written from a pastor to his congregations. And so we have to read it with that heart and mind that this is a letter and this is the end of a letter. And so um, I, w- I spent a week long, a couple weeks ago, I spent a week long, uh, I went on a family camp trip, and we had a week long lecture on Islam and on, uh, on uh, kind of the, the unique differences between Christianity and Islam. And one of the main differences is on the the Quran in the Bible is that the Quran is dictated from Allah to Muhammad just to write down. And so the whole book has nothing about Muhammad. It's not Muhammad's words. It's Allah's words. It's 100% Allah. But the difference between that and the Bible is that the Bible is 100% God, but it's also 100% man, which it makes it so meaningful when we read it because we're reading about Christians like us from hundreds of years ago writing to each other these letters, and there's so much more depth than that. And so we as Christians, when we read the Bible, we need to read it with that context in mind that this, these are people, these are real people like us, which is, makes it able us to be able to relate to it in really unique ways. And so before we get into verse 11 through 18, I want to kind of think about that context and uh, to kind of jump back into chapter 6 a little bit and give us the specific context of this last section But if you've been coming for any of these 17 weeks, it should be annoyingly so ingrained in your mind, uh, the context of of Galatians, because we say at the beginning of every sermon, and it's this idea that Paul was traveling through uh, the region of Galatia, and he came upon these pagans and uh, befriended them and then shared the gospel with them. And what happened? They all became Christians. And, And so Paul recounts in this letter this story about when he shared Jesus with them, they joyously accepted the gospel, and they believed in the cross of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for their sins and rose again, uh, that they could have eternity with God. They believed that, right? And then Paul traveled on and he left uh, the region of Galatia to minister elsewhere. And then he hears that these false teachers came in and instead of following Paul's gospel, the one he shared with them, they started following these false teachers and started to be swayed by their um, ideas. And, and we call them the Judaizers. And they were trying to say, you need to add to the gospel. It's, you can believe in Jesus. He's a cool dude. You know, you can trust in him. But you also have to do good things to get to heaven. You have to do what the Jews are doing. And Paul says at the beginning of the letter, that's not a gospel at all. How could you even believe that? And so uh, Galatians is actually one of the most gospel-rich letters in the entire New Testament. And you might be thinking, that's, that's not true. But I'm going to prove it. So um, all the other letters... Uh, or all the other uh, books in the New Testament are gospel-rich, but they're gospel-rich in revealing the gospel as a means of salvation for an unbeliever to become a believer. But Galatians is uniquely different in that it shows that it's the gospel is a continual part of a believer's life. And so the way Paul describes it here is it's for Christians. The gospel isn't just for unbelievers. It's for believers. And it's something that we need to remind ourselves of all the time. So I want to share a couple quotes about that um, who, with the same idea in mind. There's this guy named John Webster. If you read his stuff, it seems kind of dry, but he is incredibly talented. He actually just passed away last year. But he uh, wrote, something, he wrote a, a section on the gospel, and he says this, The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, who is its sum and substance. In Jesus, God intervenes in human history, putting an end to the disorder of sin and reconciling all things to himself. 
the church is not called, first of all, to live and proclaim the gospel, but to hear the gospel. And what, what John Webster was saying there is it's not our job to, first of all, to tell people about the gospel. It's our first job to hear the gospel, to tell ourselves the gospel. Uh, a guy named Martin Luther, about 500 years ago, said this. He wrote a uh, commentary on this book, and he says this. I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, but what has been done for me through Jesus Christ, to wit that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death, The gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it. Most necessary it is that we should know the gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. A very harsh Martin Luther thing to say, but his point is really true. The gospel is not only for unbelievers, it's for believers. And so when you come to church every week and we talk about the same thing over and over again, the gospel, there's a point in that. We have to continually teach our hearts that, to continually beat that into our own minds. And that is our first job as Christians, to teach ourselves the gospel and to hear it. And so that's what we want to do this morning. And uh, so let's pray one more time before we dig into the word. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much that we uh, have a chance to gather as believers and read through this book together. And uh, that we can read uh, words that were written hundreds of years ago from a pastor to his people uh, with, with tenderness and care. And, and we can open these words up and know that, uh, that you're also a part of that, that you, um, that you knew that we would open these words up. And I pray that you would uh, allow our minds to think and that we would be thoughtful and, and grapple with these words. That you'd cause our hearts to feel something and that we'd be moved in some way. And that you'd also cause our hands to, to act, God, that we would do something with these words. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So when we get into chapter 6, which is the last chapter, it feels, when you start reading it, it feels like a bunch of detached statements. You know, these, these different truths. Sometimes people call it like a, a salad bar. You're like, oh, that's a nice truth, and that's a nice truth. And uh, some people call the last chapter of Galatians the Proverbs of Galatians because it's just these, like, these really cool sentences. But I think what Paul's doing is they're actually connected in a, in a way that he draws the reader to the end and makes this final point, these, you know, these last couple lines of his letter. And, and to understand that, we have to jump back actually before 6 and look at chapter 5, verse 26. So if you open your Bible again and look at chapter 5, verse 26. <coughs> Paul um, makes a shift here, and he says this. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. A lot of scholars think that that sentence should actually be the first sentence of chapter 6 because it's a completely different thought. What Paul does is he spends this whole letter talking about this doctrinal issue, what they believe, right? What you're believing is wrong here. And then he makes a shift and he says it's not about what you're believing, it's about what you're doing now. And he deals with a relational issue. And he continues and he starts with the word conceited. And what that uh, Greek word is, it's konadoxoi, and it's two words. It's a compound word. And the first word means vain, and the second word means glory. Okay? Vain, glory, selfish praise. It's about me, right? And it's this idea that I think Paul touches on the sinful aspect of every single person's heart. And it's that every single person wants affirmation. They want to be approved of. They want to hear, good job, Tevin. 
right? That's, it's something that we seek after. And it's almost like we have these empty cavities in our heart that we try to fill with the affirmation of people and things in the world. And the Bible actually describes that we're actually made that way. God designed us to be that way, but what he designed us to want is approval from God, from himself, to hear the words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And if you read Romans chapter 1 and 2, you realize that people, instead of wanting that from God, they traded the truth of God for a lie, and they look for it everywhere else. I don't know if you relate to me in that, but I feel that, that cavity inside my heart that I try and fill it with things in the world. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying, as Christians... You don't live like the world. You don't have an empty cavity. Your cavity is full. You are filled. And and, and more than filled, you're overflowing. And you are able to share with others freely. When you're full, you you don't need things uh, from the world. Like if money doesn't, you don't need money, you want to give money. You, You don't need affirmation from people, you give affirmation to people. It's this switch that happens when you become a Christian. And so what Paul does here in in verses 11 through 18 is he takes this doctrinal issue that we've been talking about this whole series and now this relational part that Paul talked about last week and he fuses them together and shows how they're related. And he's saying what you believe feeds what you do. So then he points to the Judaizers and he says these false teachers, they're telling you this and they're doing this and it shows what they believe. In what they believe is garbage, okay? And he's going to say it right here. So let's first, first look at verse 11. Paul writes this. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So when Paul was writing this letter, it would have been um, in the same time frame that a lot of people like Paul wouldn't write their own letters with their own pen. They would have someone else write for them. And so Paul would be, you know, sitting in a chair and he'd be saying, write this down, write this down. And they'd work through a letter together. But what people would do is they would sign their own letter with their own hand. And sometimes they would say that phrase with, this is with my own hand. But what's unique about this phrase is that Paul would have taken this letter and he would have written this um, with large letters. And a lot of people think that Paul had an eyesight problem. It was really hard for him to see. And so he would have had to write with a really large print. And it would have been really difficult for him to write. And so that he's trying to like draw them to that, that I care so much about you that I'm going to write this, I'm going to write this part of the letter. This is really important to me. And in this word, he says, see, notice this, look at this. It's a really important phrase. He says, notice that I myself am writing the end of this letter. It's extremely important. Look what I'm going to say. And then he points directly at the false teachers in verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised in only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. You see, the the Judaizers, these false teachers, were making a big deal about what's on the outside, about what you do. And they're trying to get these Um, new Christians to believe in that. But what was their motivation to get them to do that? Was it because they cared about the Galatians? No. It was because of two things. One, to avoid persecution. And then two, so that they could boast in the fact that they got them to believe in this. Should that be our motivation for sharing God with other people? He points at the Judaizers and says, look at their motivation in even sharing this with you. It's wrong. What they believe is, is showing what they're doing, and what they're doing is folly. And bo- boasting and doing the right thing gets them nowhere with God. 
And then Paul continues, and he, he kind of destroys them again. In verse 14, he says, But far be it from me that I boast in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. As a believer, we are new creations in Christ. The world is dead to us. Now, um, does that mean the world is dead? No, it's, it's dead to believers. It holds no power over us. And so we're able to live in a world without seeking approval from it. So how do we do that? How do we live with boasting in the cross, with this knowing that we're going to be persecuted, with this full uh, heart, with, with, um, with this full cavity, not needing things from the world? And I think Paul gives us three things here. And the first one is he says you need to know the cross. You need to know this whole letter is about Jesus, right? You need to know what the cross means. And like Martin Luther says, you need to beat it into your head, all right? So in order to boast in the cross, you have to understand the cross. And uh, Mary Kay opened up our um, worship with that, um, with that prayer about the cross. And, and I just want to read to you the, um, the things. I don't, I'm not going to read the thing again. It's too long. But I'll read you um, what comes out of it. And this is what happened to Jesus. This is what the, the prayer says, that he was stripped naked, in front of everyone that he knew. He, he was beaten and whipped, starved of food and water, wept tears of blood. He groaned in pain. He had a thorny crown shoved into his head, and he breathed a last breath to only die in humiliation in front of everyone. That's the message of the cross. It's painful, and it's offensive to people. And Jesus, when he was living his ministry, uh, uh, actually, 40% of the Gospels is about the last week of Jesus' life. It's not a very good biography about a person, right? But the point is, is that the cross was central to Jesus' ministry. And Jesus says, uh, you know, he, 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 took, he was very careful about what people believed about the cross. And I don't know if you guys remember, Matthew chapter 16, Peter was talking to Jesus, and, and Jesus was describing what he was going to have to do on the cross. And Peter was like, no way. You know, you can be the Messiah, but there's no way that that can be what's going to happen. Do you guys remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, get behind me, Satan. Right? He, he was very upset that if you mess with the gospel, or if you mess with the cross aspect of the gospel, it's, that's the work of Satan. It's, it's anti-gospel. It's wrong. The cross is essential for our salvation. And in this idea, um, there's an idea going around that mankind is good and that if you left man to their, his own accord, he would be a good person, but culture kind of messes them up and parents make mistakes and they ruin their kids. Uh, but that is, idea is also anti-gospel. Like, that's, that's not what the gospel is. The message of the cross is that we're all broken people in need of a savior, and that's the beauty of the cross. We can't take the offense out of it because it's our source of strength. And so um, this is what was offensive to the Jews, right? If you look in verse 12, uh, they, they didn't want to be persecuted for the cross, that was super offensive to them. But it's not only offensive to Jews, it's offensive to everyone. People, if you ask outside the church, if, if you hear them talk about the cross, they are totally offended by it. How could, how could God put his wrath on a person like that who didn't do anything wrong? But the, the discomfort of the cross is our comfort in the truth. That is everything to us. In understanding what Jesus went through to save us should be our source of strength. And it builds our worldview. It builds what we do and how we live out of that. It's our identity. And so my question is, how do you teach the gospel to yourself? Do you teach the gospel to yourself? Uh, one way is just to read the Bible, right? It's filled with the gospel. 
and it, it reminds you. Another way, I think, fading out with letter writing is memorizing scripture. Uh, I was forced to do it when I was a kid because I went to Awana in this like Bible school. But I ended up loving it when I grew up, and I have all these things inside my heart that I remember from when I was a kid that feed me truth about who I am and my identity is wrapped around the cross and what I remember when I was uh, memorizing those things. And I continue to do that today to remind myself, this is my source. So do you teach yourself the gospel? Do you hear the gospel? Do you beat it into your head? So that's one. We have to know the cross. Two, we have to boast in the cross. So after believing in the cross as believers, we have to boast in it. What does that mean? What does boasting mean? And the way he uses the word boast here is kind of like a ritual boast. So did anyone stay up and watch the McGregor-Mayweather um, fight? Uh, yeah, so that's why you're in second service, because no one first service did. Um, so these, these boxers, they get into the ring, and, and they sit down, and um, after each round, they go back to their corners, and their trainers come up to them, and they, they boost them up. They tell them something like, you'll get it in the fourth round. Don't worry. You, you've got this. And they give them this encouragement, and it causes them to get back up and to go get beat in the face again. Right? It, that is called a boast. Those people are boasting. They're giving them confidence, building them up, getting them ready to fight and go back into the ring. Uh, anyone ever seen the movie Braveheart? And there's that scene when Mel Gibson has that Smurf paint on him. He's all blue. And he gets up on his horse and he talks to the front line in the battle. And he's uh, getting them all ready to fight. And, and they're about to charge in and, and to fight. And he gives them uh, this boost in morale. And, and they all together, our swords are sharp and, and we're all strong together. And we have this unity. And they go and they fight. That's a boast. And so what is your boast in your life? What causes you to do the things that you do? What, like, what is your action? Do you, do you love people out of the source of, of the gospel? Is the cross your boast? And that is what Paul is saying. The cross is the only thing that I should boast in. And so, um, practically, what does it look like to boast in the cross? Uh, I think, first of all, you should be talking about the cross, right? Someone comes up to you and says, why do you live the way that you do? Why don't you do these things? You're so weird. Um, why? Why? Because of the cross, because, because I'm a Christian, because of what Jesus has done for me, that should be an answer. Uh, it should also be something um, that we think about when we do actions, when we, when we wake up in the morning and we look in the mirror and we gain our confidence. It shouldn't come from, you know, an Oprah Winfrey, oh, the confidence is inside of you. Our confidence is inside the cross. That's what gives us motivation as Christians, our only source of joy. Do you boast in the cross? Does it give you your energy for each day? And the third thing, we must live crucified to the world, right? The world's not dead. The world is dead to us. We don't need it anymore. Our, our, our empty cat, our, we are full, and we are not just full. We're overflowing. And so that means the world has no power over us. Money has no power of us. We can freely give it. People, their affirmation and approval has no power of us so we can freely love other people. And if you go back and you read through the first part of chapter 6, that is what you get to do. Do you live as crucified to the world or are you still trying to gain approval from the world? And this is like a series. If you believe in the cross, if you boast in the cross, that is the outcome. That you don't need the things from the world. You're, You're satisfied in God. And so where do you fall in that? Is your doctrine of the cross correct? Is, are you gaining strength from it? Are you boasting in it? And is it showing in your life? And so Paul closes his letter, and he does one more thing, one more stab at the Judaizers, okay? If you look, he, he talks about the flesh again. 
and what are the Judaizers doing? They're pointing at circumcision and, and all these outside things, these, uh, these fleshy things. And, and what Paul does is he, he, he gets really, um, he uses the same kind of uh, language and he says, look at my flesh. I, I'm persecuted. I have the marks of Jesus. And so these guys are saying to win approval with God, you have to do these things and work really hard. And what Paul is saying, no, the work has been done for you. And you can see, like, persecution is the answer. That, that's, how it, that's how you know. And so he takes that last stab, and he says, if that persecution happens, that marks the marks of Jesus, anyone who lives like that has mercy and peace, and it's eternal. And so um, that's, that's how he wraps up the letter. And, and Paul wraps up his letter, and the, and the church is, is motivated. Like, these letters to me, they moved me to feel something and to do something. What is God, as we wrap up together, what is God motivating you to feel what is he motivating you to do? Maybe you're an older believer <clears throat> that has lost their fervor for the gospel. Uh, the Bible has become something that you just read. Sometimes the, the church is something that you go to because you're supposed to, and prayer is just kind of there, but it doesn't really feel like it's working. Uh, the first thing that you should do is to reteach yourself the cross. Reteach yourself what it means. Maybe you are a believer like the Galatians, where you're like, you're a Christian, but you're tempted by the world. Like, this new age stuff seems really interesting. And, and like, you know, I just like what everyone else is saying, and I don't want to offend anyone. And, and this stuff is just, you know, too difficult, and I don't know where I stand in that. Uh, remember that your cavity is so full that the things in the world don't affect you, and that you are able to love others and give others the gospel, and to know that there's freedom in the cross that you can't find anywhere else. There's no source of joy that comes from anything in the world except for the truth of the cross. Um, and the lastly, maybe you're someone who doesn't know. Uh, maybe you're someone who's spent the weeks here not believing in anything and not knowing where to believe. And to you, I want to tell you this morning that this is the most remarkable truth. In boasting in the cross, you are given new life, a clean slate, a new person. And not only that, a full person. You, you don't need things. You get to give things. That's the promise of the gospel. And, and I think our greatest fear as people is that we're afraid to be known we're afraid to be known by others, but it's also our greatest desire is to be known by others. And the, thing, the truth of the gospel is that God fully knows you. He sees your empty cavity and he fills it up and he loves you despite who you are, despite our sin, he loves us and that is offered to you too. So to come back to the cross and I, and I just pray that our church would be the church that depends on that for our source of strength in every way. So I'm gonna pray one more time and we're gonna continue to worship as we close. Uh, Father God, thank you so much that we got to read through this letter of Galatians and that uh, Paul cared enough to write in his own handwriting how much he cares about his people and giving them his last motivation to act on what they believe, that their actions would be motivated because of the cross and that they would give freely and love others well. And I pray that we as a church would depend on that same doctrine, that our doctrine would be uh, solely on what Jesus has done for us and that we would live out of that. In Jesus' name, amen.